Welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and how millennials should be saving more to buy avocados. I'm Frank Spring, joined as always by Ellie Jacobs, an excellent strategic communicator and a pretty communicative strategist. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. As always, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and really urge everybody to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us at tw- on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in presumptuous presumptuous of us to assume that you all are going to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, but you can and you should because ratings actually really matter. So please take a few seconds and give us a couple stars. And if you have a few moments longer than that, write, a, let, write us a little review. We like seeing what people are saying. Yes, we have a, uh, a slightly shorter episode uh, this week and uh, no guest uh, because of travel schedules. Uh, we should be back with a fuller episode and a guest next week. Uh, and to show that we do, in fact, listen to our reviews and our, uh, and our, our feedback, uh, we may be back with better audio quality, too. Uh, we want to make sure that you can really hear the airplanes passing overhead, uh, the helicopters, the dogs barking, the endless sirens and the incessant power tools uh, that really lend this podcast its sense of immediacy. Yeah. Um, you know, to dive right in, we'll give you, uh, as we mentioned last week, we launched Venal Pack, and we want to give you this week's update on the war on the war on corruption. This week, the Venal Pack candidate spotlight shines brightly on Fox host Sean Hannity. Sean, I haven't spoken to Trump in weeks, I mean days, I mean minutes. Hannity has done something that even many ardent Fox fans uh, have really just found wildly unappealing. Yeah, Venal Pack doesn't just confine its support to elected officials. We're really, uh, we're we're really behind any public figure uh, on any scale who you know commits themselves uh, to self-aggrandizement and personal enrichment at the expense of what uh, lesser people might call basic human decency. And uh, and Sean Hannity has just been an absolute model of that lately. Uh, he spent the last week or so uh, bloviating about the, the death of DNC staffer Seth Rich, who was uh, murdered in D.C. last summer in what authorities believe was a robbery gone bad. Uh, but the intrepid Hannity senses an opportunity for justice, if by justice we mean uh, personal gain and the sweet, sweet attention that he craves more than air itself. Uh, and he's been pushing on air what even the board of Venal Pack uh, must describe as some fringe uh, theories about what happened in the case uh, involving WikiLeaks and the Clinton campaign. And, uh, well, the, the details don't really merit consideration. Uh, but that hasn't stopped Sean Hannity, the thirstiest boy detective, uh, from pursuing the case to the utmost. Uh, he finally climbed down this week. But for a, a genuinely heroic performance uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in an effort uh, to, uh, to personally aggrandize and enrich himself at the expense of, ba- of basic humanity, we have to commend Sean Hannity uh, and give him the venal pack's nod of the week for his, his truly uh, desperate behavior. Yeah, and you got to think that when uh, venal pack board member Roger Stone says you've gone too far, maybe you should take it back a little bit. Yeah, that's right. If Roger is Roger is our Roger is definitely the the canary in the coal mine, the uh, cosplaying uh, you know, canary in the god awful coal mine. Yeah, I mean, the question that we, we really are kind of just stuck with when it comes to Hannity is why in the hell is he doing this? I mean, this is what he does regularly, but even for him, this is a little bit much. It's a little bit long. It's a little bit past the point of even, you know, believability that if this is something that he's actually concerned about, especially after Fox 
came out and said, you know, we, we don't back this story up anymore. Yeah. And, and the, and after, uh, the young man's family had asked in no uncertain terms that everyone just drop this, um, you know, what is he doing? Um, and I think some of this, there's, there's two sort of answers to this, but what's happening one is it's just a good indication of how desperate Hannity and the Hannity's of the world are uh, to find something to do in the absence of the Clintons. Yep. Like without the Clintons around, these people just like they're. I mean, what will you know? What will they fixate on? What will they fulminate about? I mean, it's this really. Is, you know, the the end of the Clinton campaign really was, in some respects, the end of an absolute era. I mean, it's a billion dollar cottage industry. Uh, you know, that's spent for the more better part two, of two decades. Yeah, exactly. That's been more than two decades, really. I mean, if you sort of go back to some of the some of its earliest roots in Arkansas, and, uh, I mean, it has it has been a kind of a massive. It's been like a WBA, like a like a you know, like a uh, you know, it really has been a kind of uh, a kind of make work project for otherwise unemployable right-wing lunatics, yeah. uh, you know, who can you know be you know are able to feed and clothe themselves, if you can call it that. Uh, and and now they just have no idea what to do. So part of it is like they have to fulminate about something, and this seems like a thing that they can talk about. It's tangentially related to the Clintons, right? Uh, and also, there's for in terms of Hannity himself, the idea of making some. I mean, this is a chance to again get some of that sweet, sweet attention that he craves so much. Uh, but also, you know, there's an argument that he may be trying to aggrandize himself to the wingnut base as much as possible, uh, seeing the writing on the wall with Fox. Uh, he's going to, you know, he may be essentially trying to blow himself up as much as possible and get rile up his fan base as much as possible before he departs Fox in what appears to be a, a move that could very easily be coming. So he may be choosing his own. I, that gives him a little bit more credit for planning than I would give to Sean Hannity, um, you know, who seems to be, you know, sort of one of these kind of more reactive creatures than a, right. you know, than a real planner. But but that could be what's happening as well here. Yeah, it's sort of he kind of lands somewhere in that scale between. Um, uh, a free-floating lunatic like uh, 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 what the hell's his name from Infowars, Alex Jones. Alex Jones. It's like Alex Jones on one hand and like Gary Kasparov, the chess player, on the other side, and like Hannity somewhere in the middle. Yeah, yeah, he's he's yeah, that's that's exactly right. He's he hasn't gone a full on Louis Mensch, but he's headed in that right. direction. He's headed in that also, direction. Also, it's been also he's a he's a little old for this, but it's been rightly pointed out that there is a kind of. Um, it is a kind of rite of passage for a certain type of right winger to become unemployable and then start his own webs, his own lunatic fringe sure. website uh, or, you know, or, you know, media franchise uh, because I mean, there, these people have such serious attachment disorders that they're incapable of working with people for more than five or 10 years. Sure. Sure. So sure. he may be headed in that direction. Yeah. But uh, on a more serious note and, you know, we here at taking ship uh, look for, the opportunities to make fun of things, which is what we try to do. But uh, Seth's risk, Seth Rich's death and his murder are obviously incredibly tragic. And from all accounts of people who knew him, he was a delightful person, very promising, s- sweet, smart, you know, all the wonderful things that you'd hope to hear about uh, somebody. Um, and we're, always look- we're also always looking for ways to give back. And we learned that Seth Rich's family has set up a memorial fund, the Seth Rich Memorial Camp Scholarship Fund, through the Bethel Synagogue in his hometown of Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, we'll post an article describing the fund on our Twitter feed uh, at Taking Ship, and uh, urge you to you know throw in a couple shekel if you can, um, because yes, it's, uh, it's certainly a worthwhile cause. As a representative of Venal Pack, I cannot endorse a decent and human act like contributing to that worthy cause. I want to specify Venal Pack does not endorse charity of any kind. <laughs> 
So, <laughs> so moving on to things that we won't be dis- moving on to the things we won't be discussing this week. Each week we talk about the things that we're really looking forward to not talking about. Um, yeah. So, what? Yeah, the, the things that we are ostentatiously ignoring. Yeah, uh, we can start across the pond where we're not entirely sure Donald Trump and Emmanuel Macron have stopped shaking hands, or if little Donnie is done throwing world leaders out of the way so he can get to the head of the line. But uh, after the grim look on, on Pope Francis's face yesterday, and who boy, if you haven't seen this, uh, for a man who generally has a smile on his face that can light up a room, um, and he, he generally does, I mean, it's a remarkable thing, you know, man of God, clearly at peace with himself and at the world, and his smile lights up a room. He was just, whew, he looked grim with Trump. It yeah, was yeah, this something. Is- this is the angriest a pope has looked since the Waldensian heresy. I mean, this 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 dude, this dude is pissed. That is one furious vicar of Christ. It's yeah. it's not good. <laughs> yeah. So you know, if the pope's face, uh, with after the pope's face, and kind of reading into that, there's not a whole lot more that we can add to the cavalcade of our small-handed president. But you know, we'll just make a couple small observations. Uh, one quick one is uh, Trump. While he was in Israel, he during one of his formal speeches, he mentioned that he had just gotten back from the Middle East. And uh, the clip of this, uh, on the right side of the clip, you can see Ron Dermer, who is uh, the Israeli ambassador to the U.S., kind of just the look on his face is what we everybody in the world is always thinking at all times, every time little Donnie opens his mouth. And it's, you know, from Trump's perspective, removing Israel from the Middle East makes bringing peace to the Middle East really a lot more plausible. So if that's... It's brilliant, actually, if you think about it. Yeah, if that's the secret, that's that. I mean, he's been living in a world devoid of facts and alternative facts this whole time, and he just found a new one. Yeah, why didn't we? Ju- why haven't we just redefined the Middle East as being what we want it to be? Yeah, that's the easiest way to bring peace to anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I usually say when people want money from me to pay for you know bills and that kind of stuff, I say these are not the droids you're looking for. And apparently, that Donald Trump thinks that can work. That's exactly right. If we are vowing to bring peace to the Near East or the Middle East, what we really should do is is define the Middle East as whatever geographic region we think so, and an enormous amount of outer space where not a shot has been fired in hundreds of years. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's 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 the real that's the way to look at this thing. Uh, I also enjoyed as long as we're sort of talking about you know you know the our innocent president's trip abroad. Well, I'm not talking uh, about it really. We're not talking about it, as long as we're ostentatious. <laughs> Actually, this is one thing that we should ostentatiously avoid talking about, and and that I was so proud of the internet's handling of is the orb. Oh God! The, I mean, this, and it, I don't know that there's that much else to be said except that somewhere, you know, somewhere Sauron is taking his hand away from an orb and like, oh God, the things that I've seen can't be unseen. Yeah, the the, the hurling his palantir into a pond. The a friend a friend of mine uh, had a comment on Twitter. He had a picture. You know, everybody had their memes going with what the you know the Sauron lines and other lines. His was uh, uh, we need Michael Jordan because this is you know in the reference to Space Jam when all the monsters monsters put their hands on the ball and it glows yeah. like an orb. That's essentially what it was. Yeah, yeah, just just delightful. More orb politics and orb theory, less of everything else. Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, you'd think Trump would have been smart enough not to put his hand next to Australia because then you just get like that relative size thing. And whew, the, yeah, the man does have small hands. He really does. It's just, but but which 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 I I'm actually in the picture with Macron. It looks like it looks like Trump is giving him a dead fish. And Macron is squeezing the life out of him, and that may be what's happening. That's reportedly what's happened. But I actually think that after, after some of the footage that we've seen with Trump and Melania, I'm convinced that Trump is hanging on because he's just happy someone will hold his hand. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah, that 
Yeah, I got nothing else. <laughs> this French guy's great. Like, he's just like, look at this. People do like me. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ. All right. What else aren't we talking about? All right. Another thing we're definitely not going to be discussing is the Republican candidate and presumed next congressman from Montana, uh, Greg Gianforte's temper. Um, you know, as Frank no, and I talked about last that. week, uh, or we didn't talk about last week, was uh, that this race was always going to be a huge long shot. Uh, it's usually rated as R plus 16, and the Dem candidate is not somebody that is, you know, an obvious candidate, and he leaves much to be desired in general. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons the Dem party hasn't been dumping money into it the way they have with the Georgia 6th. Um, but, yeah, Greg Giaforte. Yeah, I'm I'm a little more bullish on on Quest as a candidate than uh, than uh, uh, certainly than you are, Ellie. But but I but fully take the point. Like this was always going to be a, a this is always a long shot, uh, and it took a very interesting turn yesterday. And uh, just a quick point of nomenclature before we talk about that: what Greg Gianforte did to the Guardians, Ben Jacobs, is a choke slam. It was not a body slam, as has been reported. It is a choke slam, uh, which is different in a number of ways. Among other things, it's a lot more dangerous than a body slam. Yeah. You know, a GOP candidate assaulting a reporter is an actual, genuine, true, absolute scandal. And contrary to the likes of Laura Ingram, who's saying that Gianforte's beating of the Guardian reporter um, was a manly act. And that's what people in Montana do. Um, it's not, I've been there. It's a very nice place. People are very nice and welcoming. Um, no, it was just an act of cowardice, and it was wrong. And the fact that the GOP and Paul Ryan and the head of the RNCC hasn't all come out and said it was wrong is, a, is just mind-boggling. But in today's GOP, we're actually seeing, you know, beating up on the little guy like Ben Jacobs, who is not a large person, um, no relation. Uh, we should make that clear. Um, is in vogue. The leader of their party does it on a regular basis, and the party can't defend it. Thus, they're all getting in on it. And if Gianforte, this asshole, can't handle a recorder in his vicinity in a contained manner to the point he had to beat a man, how the hell was he going to live in Capitol Hill where there are just scores of reporters chasing you down at all times? And more importantly, kind of the question that, that I'm st- stuck with is if candidates are having this much trouble defending Trump care, to the point that they have no response other than physical violence. Is this really a good bill? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a good look when someone says, what do you think about a CBO score? And your first answer is, I'll kill you. Come, come here, let me get my hands around your vile neck. Like that just, that doesn't right. necessarily feel like a, like a, like a, a real sustainable position. Or perhaps um, he, was, he was trying to show Ben Jacobs immediate, like the immediate impact Trump care can have on his own health care. <laughs> That's exactly right. Let me beat the shit out of you. So you, you need, so you need healthcare. <laughs> but if this is going to be, that's actually a really, it's kind of piece of performance art. It wasn't so much an answer to Ben Jacobs question as a kind of commentary on a real, on the relations between politicians and the press uh, and healthcare itself um, it was a brilliant it was a brilliant performance piece uh, Greg Gianforte is the is the greatest living performance artist uh, if if the GOP decides that that is in fact going to be how they respond to questions right, right generally right after Gallagher Right after that's exactly right, and yeah, that's just like, oh my god! How do you respond to the C the CBO score? Takes out a hammer and a watermelon. <laughs> Are you not amused? 
Now, if they're going to start beating up on on reporters every time they're asked a question, we're going to start needing some bigger GOP candidates because this again is not a shot at Ben Jacobs particularly, but uh, you know this if if he were six five and two fifty, this would not have happened because you know guys like Jan Forte don't actually uh, pick on people their own size. Uh, okay, the on the, from a kind of political perspective. This happened obviously very late in the campaign. It happened last night, and voting is happening now. Uh, there's already a fairly sizable early vote in, which is one of the reasons that we are sort of, you know, we and others have said that Jen Forte could very easily win this thing, um, in spite of the fact that he uh, committed what is now being described as a misdemeanor, but could very easily be prosecuted as a felony uh, the night before the vote. Uh, it's hard to press for a political advantage on a short timetable. Uh, and this is a this is not the primary concern. The primary concern is about the fact that the GOP candidate was unable to field a question and decided to commit an act of violence. Like that's that's the story here. Yep. I will say though, this is we you know we are political hacks uh, from a hack perspective, and this is the most hackish talk of all. What you know what's the what are the political ramifications of this? It's hard to press a political advantage on a very short timetable. Uh, the DCCC has. Some digital ads up today, uh, you know they're they're doing what they can do. But I, I want us to take a moment and you know that their next opportunity, raise a glass to whoever in the Quist campaign came up with the idea of having canvassers play the audio of the assault on the doorstep. Uh, that was happening within hours of the incident. Uh, they were you know Quist canvassers knocking on people's doors and being like, hey, this just happened. Listen to this thing because there was audio of the event. Uh, that's a that that's some decent work right there. So whoever whoever you are from the Quist campaign, thumbs up to you. Indeed. Yeah. And speaking of uh, defending uh, the things that need to be defended with absolute things that can only be defended with violence, uh, Trump care uh, and the CBO score. So as we mentioned, the C- we talked about the question that uh, provoked this violent response was about uh, the CBO score, the Congressional Budget Office score of Trump care. Uh, it was it has come out. It is as bad as everyone expected it to be. Yeah, I, we want to just pay particular attention to Mark Meadows, um, he of the Freedom Caucus, to remind you uh, that group of savvy, motivated hucksters were the guys who thought the initial Trump care didn't go far enough in terms of obliterating the healthcare system right now. Yes. Yeah. Well, they were not turned off by how draconian it was, but by the fact that it was insufficiently draconian. Um, so they got the next one through. Uh, which apparently met those standards, and and uh, and they were able to pass it through the House. Apparently, in an interview uh, after learning from the CBO the implications of Trump Care, uh, Meadows told reporters he would go through the CBO analysis more thoroughly and run the numbers, uh, adding he would uh, have to do some work to make sure the high risk pools are properly funded. Yeah, and then Meadows apparently grew emotional and choked back tears, and he said, uh, "Quote: Listen, I lost my sister to breast cancer. I lost my dad to lung cancer." If anybody is sensitive to pre-existing conditions, it's me. I'm not going to make a political decision today that affects somebody's sister or father because I wouldn't do it myself. And that is a honest thing to say. And it's a wonder how this man could have voted for this bill with that as a thought in his head. It's pretty remarkable. And you know, he finished the quote by saying. Quote, in the end, we've got to make sure that there's enough funding there to handle pre-existing conditions and drive down premiums. And if we can, can't do those three things, I only counted two, but okay. If we can't do those three things, then we have failed. Yes. And, and this, yeah, and so this raises the question, what in God's name did he think he was voting on? I mean, none of this stuff was a goddamn secret. 
Yeah, it, 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 I don't know. Did, did he avoid media entirely during the weeks of debate? Was his staff just totally AWOL? Was he incapable of recognizing that if you say to insurance companies that you don't have to do this pre-existing condition thing anymore, that they're all going to go back to limiting people who have pre-existing conditions from getting insurance or charging them infinitely more? It's kind of, you know, again, feel terrible for the man for having you know lost his sister and his father. And, and to his credit, he's clearly recognizing that there's a uh, a policy implication of a political decision that he's making. But what the hell was he thinking? Sure. I mean, this, the, I mean, there, there is either he is completely incapable of processing information in any way that we understand or, and which is definitely on the table, uh, given that again, he is of the freedom caucus, uh, but also, and this is, I mean, uh, you know, given his personal experience, he had to say anything like this, but I mean, this could also be just, you know, a, a truly, you know, an epically cynical exercise in talking out of both sides of his mouth. Which is the other, which is the other and much less, and, you know, and even somehow even more unsavory option on this thing is that, you know, he's now giving us some crocodile tears, uh, when in point of fact, like, because there's just the idea that he would, would have looked at the piece of legislation as it was written and as it passed through the house and said, oh yeah, this, this handles preexisting conditions and drive down, drives down premiums is ludicrous. The whole point of this thing was, uh, it was, it was to be a significant budget cut. That's what the Freedom Caucus wanted Trump care to be not a health care bill at all, but a massive budget cut, ideally accompanied by a tax cut, uh, and and be damned to the health care implications. Uh, and now that they've come back bad, suddenly this dude appears to have you know, is is going around claiming to have grown some kind of not only a conscience but have developed some kind of deep personal moral resonance with this issue. And for that, those are the things that we're not talking about this week. Yes, I'm glad we didn't talk about any of those. My yeah. God, those were distasteful. Great that we didn't talk about any of those. But uh, let's do talk about uh, one thing that's upcoming. And we did a little bit of this a uh, couple weeks ago. And we want to revisit it because, again, uh, we, we feel that a lot of our listeners don't have uh, immediate access to uh, the likes of Frank's British thinking brain. So we want to spend a little bit of time talking about the UK elections. Sure. And it's, it's speaking of distasteful. Um, no, the UK elections are, uh, the general election is coming up. It's on the 8th. Uh, when last we left our intrepid heroes, uh, labor was in an historically weak position, uh, based on the, based on the polling, uh, the party itself was in a very, very bad spot, uh, down almost 20 points against the conservatives. You would be, you would expect the Labor Party to be polling somewhere in around the 30 to 35 percent range, maybe the high 20s. Uh, they were in the low 20s. The conservatives were in the mid 40 percent. This is a giant. I mean, it's a huge, huge uh, disparity by the standards of British politics. Uh, since then, Labor has had a bit of a surge, according to uh, a couple of polls. Uh, they seem they they appear to have been doing. There's just a, a sense that the, they probably had hit bottom and may have recovered somewhat. Uh, one poll showed a fairly dramatic closing uh, of the gap between conservative and labor, although conservatives were still significantly up. Uh, just, but it had it labor. Like, back it seems to me it's one of these things like you know you can even drop a very heavy object and it's going to bounce a little bit when it hits the sure. floor. Uh, that's yeah the de- yeah the yeah the famous dead cat bounce and that may very well have been happening. It's not clear what's yeah. So the conservatives still have a clear lead, but uh, labor, at least according to one poll, uh, is solidly back into the thirties. And you know we'll. We'll see if that actually sticks. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and a big indicator here is that uh, Jeremy Corbyn's numbers, his personal numbers are still completely in the crapper. Um, so, as, as we have repeatedly said, um, 
neck beards and uh, uh, and Jada. what the fuck? I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> neck beards and something unmentionable will doom Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, analysis of Ella Jacobs. That will, yeah, yeah. I mean Corbyn's numbers are in the crap where they have been for a long time. He doesn't seem to be getting much more popular. It'd be hard for him to. Um, so, uh, you know, there's what we it would suggest that labor surge may be a bit of a blip could be normal political gravity reasserting itself in the sense that, yeah, that those labor's numbers are probably a little bit artificially depressed. So you could be seeing some labor voters return to the party now that an election has actually been called and is getting underway. Um, it also, what, what, what we can say that I think is actually genuinely happening is that, you know, labor is that Britain, you know, Britain has two big national parties, labor and conservative. And then in the past uh, seven years, they have seen a couple of other, a third and fourth national party uh, rise to significant prominence enough that, while they didn't necessarily win a lot of seats, they won a fair, a fair share of the vote and were at least political forces to be reckoned with. That's the Liberal, Liberal Democratic Party, the Lib Dems, and UKIP, uh, United Kingdom Independence Party. This is distinct, and, and sort of those are your kind of big national parties. There's obviously a giant regional party in Scotland, the Scottish National Party. Oh, I was about uh, to ask. Yeah, what we are seeing, and they're, they're, they are... I mean, they, they now own Scotland, uh, which used to be a. I, I'm sure I've just we've talked about this before, but that used to be, uh, you know, a, a true Labour heartland. And the the loss of of Scotland for the Labour Party would be the equivalent of losing California and more for the Democratic Party. Mm. So, what what is what does appear to be happening is that the Lib Dems and and UKIP are genuinely disintegrating. Uh, that especially UKIP, which at one point was polling in the in the mid teens a few couple of years ago. Uh, is down to somewhere between two and four, you know, maybe five percent, if that. Uh, they're they've utterly dis- they've utterly disappeared, and I think a big portion of that is that the UKIP voters essentially got what they wanted. They got the Brexit uh, referendum, and as a result, and and won it. And as a result, UKIP has kind of lost its primary motivating impetus and has descended into ludicrous infighting. And and when you mo- when you take much away- like Fox News. Much like Fox News, that's exactly that's exactly right. And when you take away that, um, there's 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 really something in that. Actually, when you take away that driving impetus, what you're left with is a very clear vision of just how ghastly and weird the leadership of UKIP I think has always been. Uh, so it may very well be that UKIP was the concern for the British progressives has to be that UKIP functioned as a kind of way station a conduit through which white working class voters passed from labor into the conservative party uh, via UKIP and the Brexit referendum. So that, that could be the structural shift that we're looking for. As for the Lib Dems, this should have been their opportunity. They, in theory, this should have been their opportunity to cast themselves as the, le- as the valid lefty option, uh, liberal option in the absence of a, of a coherent labor uh, but their own leadership is a disaster. Uh, their their time in government with the Tories, I think, really did prove to be their death blow. People haven't forgotten it and haven't forgiven it. So the third and fourth national parties in, in Britain really do appear to have just completely disintegrated. Right. And I, I saw that uh, Prime Minister May came into some criticism recently for dramatically uh, and drastically changing her position on how much people would have to pay for certain kinds of social care. Kind of sounds similar to uh, Donald Trump. Um, and speaking of Donald Trump, uh, May's flip flop uh, especially hits people with uh, dementia. That's correct. There was a uh, 
the conservative manifesto took a pretty draconian position, uh, unsurprisingly, on uh, how the government would pay for certain kinds of social care, especially around dementia. Uh, it, it, that that part of the uh, manifesto did not go over well, and May very quickly reversed it, announced a change in position, uh, which is kind of which is at odds with her party's own uh, her party's own stated position. Now, she changed to a more popular position, uh, but when you're running as the you know stability candidate, the one who knows what she stands for, this kind of thing actually looks pretty bad. Uh, so she, she's come in for a certain amount of criticism. It's not clear how well that has penetrated the electorate. Uh, it is probably not a coincidence that as that was happening, as May was coming in for criticism for doing a flip-flop or a U-turn, uh, that yeah, it's not a coincidence that the conservatives did an, uh, began a serious uh, opposition research dump on Jeremy Corbyn and his previous support for the IRA. Uh, Corbyn had campaigned with uh, IRA leader Jerry Adams. I mean, he, uh, Jerry Adams would deny having been an IRA leader uh, at the time that this happened, would have claimed that he was just associated with Sinn Féin, which is a, a political party strongly associated with the IRA. Uh, but in fact, I mean, it's, that's a distinct, that's, you know, that, that is a distinction uh, without a difference at the time that this happened. Um, so Corbyn had previously been very complimentary of IRA leadership and of the IRA itself and its cause. Uh, the shadow chancellor of the Labour Party, John McDonnell, uh, went one better, uh, was explicitly uh, complimentary of the IRA's violent campaigns um, and actually opposed the Good Friday Agreement, which is an, an often overlooked accomplishment of the Blair government and, and in which Blair himself had a very significant hand. Anyway, so that's that happened at the same time that uh, uh, that, that uh, Theresa May was coming in for uh, for criticism around the same time. And it's and in the me- in the middle of this, to give you a sense of how these whole things kind of spiral out of control, they've you know it's dragged in uh, the leader of the Scottish Labour Party, Porkesia Dugdale, uh, who you know as leader of the you know the last you know six remaining Labour voters in Scotland. It's a fantastic uh, name. Yeah, exactly. Desperately trying to cling to what's left of, you know, Labour's tenuous toehold in Caledonia, is having to go out and and you know is having to go out and give statements about how well you know the Jeremy Corbyn's been misinterpreted. He's not actually an IRA sympathizer. You know, I you know I I admire her going out there. Uh, she's doing the best she can in unbelievably difficult circumstances. And I will just say this: having people try and get out there and say uh, having people get out and having your surrogates or yourself have to get out and say, I am not an IRA sympathizer or he is not an IRA sympathizer is, uh, boy, you, if, if you're having to do that, you have already lost that particular discussion. Uh, it's, you know, it's basically the equivalent of just of getting up and having to deny that you're a racist. It's not a good look. Right. Uh, so, you know, I, it, w- whether this, whether either of these particular scandals proves to be a blip, or whether you know, it's just it, it's we'll we'll have to wait for the next round of uh, of polling, and then and then the obviously the election itself to tell us. But that's that's your uh, update of politics from across the pond, right? And we had planned on talking about this uh, before the um, you know terrible Manchester bombing um, this past Monday night, uh, and we don't really want to talk about the Manchester bombing in electoral political context, except to say that disasters do have impacts on political outcomes and they do tend to favor the governments that are actually in power at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, it's, there is a tendency amongst politicos to look at something like this and want to say, how is this going to affect the election? And and there's been some, some criticism of that quite justifiably. I will say that, uh, you know, Manchester itself has, has, I mean, acquitted itself with, uh, you know, with a, a you know, a, a grace uh, in the face of this tragedy that is really quite humbling. Um, I mean, it is sort of, so we don't want to talk about it in an electoral political context, in a kind of broader 
political sense of how events like this move public feeling. Um, you know, it's, I mean, the rightists and the Islamophobes have taken their usual positions with the regularity, uh, you know, usually reserved for penitents, assuming the stations of the cross. So nothing particularly surprising has happened, uh, in reaction to this from a kind of, even the sort of bigger structural political responses. The, one of the things that is a little surprising and also, uh, particularly, uh, potentially destabilizing and damaging is the fact that the, uh, UK uh, intelligence services have decided to not to no longer share intel about this specific uh, investigation with the United States intelligence community uh, because some photos and information, including the suspect's name, were leaked to the U.S. media by the U.S. intel community, um, presumably by the U.S. intel community. And one of the reasons that this is such an important thing to highlight is um, the Five Eyes Agreement. This is where um, uh, Australia, New Zealand. The United States uh, and Great Britain, um, they're the the IC, the intelligence communities of those countries, essentially work in lockstep together, and they share everything with one another to the extent that uh, I've heard former CIA directors say, you know, it was never a question of what can I share with the head of MI6 or MI5 because I could share anything with them. Uh, so the fact that this is uh, um, being done is uh, uh, unprecedented, at least in the last few decades, I would say. Um, and particularly coming on the heels of Donald Trump's uh, leaking of intelligence to the Russians while they were in the Oval Office and leaking, uh, which is even more baffling that he did this, uh, leaking the location of some nuclear submarines to the president of the Philippines in a phone call. Yes. So to say that, to say that the U.S. Uh, intelligence community right now is uh, um, hopping furious and a little bit of disarray is probably an understatement. Yeah. And it's to be clear, this is... Uh, the the entity that is no that isn't sharing information with the U.S. intelligence community right now is the Greater Manchester Police. Um, they're the ones who uh, have just unilaterally decided not to, and and it's pretty clear that this is less a a permanent, uh, a, you know, a permanent end to their work with, uh, you know, with the U.S. intelligence than it is of essentially we're getting a timeout. Um, right. And and you know, and that's and that's. It, it is unfortunate, but it's it's understandable. I mean, uh, you know, that we were, you know, someone in the U.S. intelligence community, some people were given uh, information and and images that really should not have should not have gotten out, and of course, those things were promptly leaked. Uh, so, Theresa May, uh, after a meeting of what is without question the best named crisis committee in the Western world, Cobra, uh, that's the uh, you know a meeting of the uh, the British intelligence uh, uh, crisis team, uh, promised uh, basically to scold Donald Trump about not sharing sensitive information. Uh, when she sees him uh, next in Brussels, uh, which is a, a conversation that I would very much like to be a fly on the wall for, uh, you know, presumably maybe she can also tell him, you know, just just give him some other good advice, like you know, don't share sensitive stuff, uh, you know, don't put forks in sockets, you know, I, you know, don't take a bath next to the toaster, like well, I mean, you know, just anything, you know, all of the stuff that most of us would assume someone who was seventy years old had learned by now, right. Uh, it, that, that clearly has not sunk in. So, if you have recommendations to give uh, for Theresa May to uh, tell Donald Trump, uh, you know, please get them over now, and, and maybe we can do some real good here. Absolutely, please tweet them at at, at, at taking ship. At we taking appreciate ship. it. Exactly. Yeah. So, I think the only thing we can we you know, we as Americans can really say to the Brits is, uh, well, I mean, it's it, if it makes you feel any better, it's not just you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, per what Ellie said, we're basically just telling everyone anything anyone tells us at this point. 
uh, you know, just so, uh, you know, honestly, like I, I won't say, uh, you know, keep your secrets to yourself until we can figure our shit out. Um, but I won't not say that, I guess. Yeah. And on that happy note, uh, that'll be our show for this week. Thanks for joining us uh, for this shortened episode. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship, where again, we'll post some information about the uh, Memorial fund for uh, Seth rich and please send all your advice that Theresa May should give Donald Trump to taking ship as well. Um, and of course, that's at taking ship, and that's ship with a P as in phalanx. And with that, Frank, where are we headed? We take ship this week for Henderson Island. Henderson is one of the Pitcairn Islands, uh, British territories in effectively the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I mean, they're not, they're near nothing except each other. Uh, Henderson Island is deserted. But by virtue of its location on a current that apparently gathers and floats large amounts of rubbish, uh, Henderson Island has 38 million pieces of trash on it. It's a tiny island, 38 million pieces of trash. It has a greater density of trash than anywhere on Earth. Uh, Some kind of cleanup is probably technically possible, although it would be monumentally expensive. We at Taking Ship look upon this heaving mass of garbage and see something else. A prime candidate for the official corporeal headquarters of Twitter. So we shall weigh anchor and set forth with a shanty on our lips and joy in our hearts to hoist the blue flag with the little white Tweety Bird uh, above a mound of worthless garbage and deplorable filth. So friends, we take ship now for Henderson Island. Take care, everybody.